All right, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. The book of Malachi in the Old Testament. Because there is a Christmas passage of Scripture in this book that I would like to refer to this morning. The book of Malachi, that's the last book in the Old Testament. And following the book of Malachi will be 400 silent years where there'll be no revelation from God. 400 years. And the people during that 400-year period are going to have to depend upon all that God has told them in those 39 books, including the book of Malachi. Now, I want to look specifically at verses 17 of chapter 2 and the first few verses of chapter 3. And you may look at this and you may say, well, I don't see the Christmas story here at all. I don't see the nativity. I don't see the wise men. I don't see the shepherds. I don't see the star. I don't see Bethlehem. I don't see any of these things. Well, we need to look a little harder. Here we are in chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How many of us get weary of words? Yet you say, God is speaking through the prophet Malachi. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say this, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Now think about that for a second. Here are the children of Israel. They're back in their homeland. They have been given permission by the Persian king, Cyrus, to come back home from their captivity. And they're back in Palestine. The first thing they did, of course, was to rebuild the temple. It took them a long struggle to do that. They did it. And now it's time for them to rebuild the walls. And so Nehemiah comes from Persia on assignment to help them rebuild the walls. And then Nehemiah goes back to Persia because the king wanted him back there. And then he makes a second trip to Israel. And the second trip to Israel was because of the problem that you see in verse 17. The children of Israel have gotten to the place where they have said, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, or, where is the God of justice? I like this particular handbook's introduction to the book of Malachi. I like these words specifically. Uh, the introduction discusses Nehemiah's visits to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Israel. And then it says this. It is about 80 years after Haggai and Zechariah spurred the people on to rebuild the temple. 80 years later. Now, those two books are right before this. You have Zechariah, and right before Zechariah, you have Haggai. 
And 80 years later, the children of Israel have been in the land. They've rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls, but they're in a terrible, terrible spiritual condition. And he describes it very, very well. It is a difficult waiting time, and disillusion has set in. Times are hard. The people are poor, ground down by foreign powers. The prosperity promised by Haggai, if they get their priorities right, has not materialized. And Zechariah's glorious predictions of the future Messiah King and the day of God's judgment and restoration have not come to pass. It is hard to hold on to hope as the waiting drags on. The people are beginning to doubt the words of the prophets, to feel God has forgotten them and let them down. And this shows in an increasing casual attitude to worship and the standards God has set them. And may I add to that introduction, it has resulted in a number of sins that are hard for us to imagine. And so when Nehemiah comes, and by the way, when Nehemiah writes the book of Nehemiah, it's almost identical to what is said here in the book of Malachi. Now, I want to trace this just for another minute before we go any further, because uh, there are a couple of other examples I want you to see of the problem that the children of Israel are having. Their heart is not in their relationship with the Lord. They're very discouraged, and it has led them to increasingly add sin upon sin in their society. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. God claims, God says this to Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord. And their response is, really? I mean, that's their response. They retort. Really, you say, and you say, in what way have you loved us? You're challenging the Lord. You're saying, Lord, you say you love us, but we don't believe it. We don't see it. Not from our perspective can we say that we understand that you love us. They're skeptical, and they're objecting to the, what the Lord has to say. But there are other illustrations. Go to verse 6, all right? If I were to give you the background, it would be in verse 6, verse, uh, verse six of chapter 1. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am the master, where is my reverence? You can tell already that the children of Israel are not reverencing the Lord. And then he says, yet you say, and he says this several times throughout the book, Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? How have we done that to you? Now, most of us would look at a statement like that and say, come on, are you playing dumb? Come on, don't you understand? Are you really that dense that you're challenging the Lord on this and suggesting that we're okay? 
We don't understand where you're coming from. We're just clueless. God answers every single one of these statements that Israel makes. Answers every single one. And when they say, in what way have we despised your name? God answers in verse 7 and says, you offer defiled food on my altar. And then, but say, in what way have we defiled you? You offer defiled food on there. And then, and then you say, well, Lord, how have we been disrespectful to you? By the way, in the book, and, he, and we don't look at it today, this morning, but God says, would you, would you have a big meal at your house, and would you offer bad food to your guests? And of course, the answer would be, no, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't offer bad food to our guests. But you're doing that with me. Verse 7, you offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, and here's, here's what they say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. We admit this is bad stuff. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick as a sacrifice, is it not evil? They're taking the worst things that they have in their flocks. And they're offering it before the Lord. Now in verse 12, I want you to see. See, this is not just something that comes up once or twice in the book of Malachi. It goes all through the book, clear to the end. In verse 12, but you profane it in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, and, and here's a new part. Oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, thus to bring an offering. Their heart is not in their worship. Their heart is not in their relationship with the Lord. It's too hard, they say, to serve him. I'm tired of it. Tired of worshiping the Lord. I'm tired of all of this stuff. It's okay for us to do what we're doing because God is treating the unbeliever or the evil person in the same way he treats us. There's no difference. Get up and I go to work. And I go down to visit, and I go to the store, and I do my everyday chores, and I see that the evil person is being treated by God in the very same way that I'm being treated. Now you say, is this stuff, well, yeah, it is very important. I, I, I wanted to give a sermon this morning that was just totally nativity scene. I wanted to do that. But this Christmas passage includes a lot more, and there's a very good reason why it's critical for us to deal with that. In verse 8, he says, you have departed from the way, you have caused many to stumble at the law, and you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9 at the end, but you have not kept my ways and have shown partiality in the law. But if we would go back and we would look at the statements that they make, we could continue and continue and continue and continue until we reach chapter 3, verse 13. 
where God makes a conclusion. I'm skipping over several. You probably guessed that, sake of time. So we reached verse 13, and God says to the children of Israel, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, What have we spoken against you? God answers, and God says, You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed, for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Now, two things show up in that chapter 2, verse 17 that I want you to, we're going back there and we're going to finish this up now. But two things show up there. Number one, you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And number two, you say, where is the God of justice? And you and I need to keep in mind that you and I shouldn't, you know, I can feel for the children of Israel because of what's happening in their land. Because of the poverty. And because of the social problems and all of the difficulties they're dealing with, I can, I can understand that, but you and I would acknowledge the fact that there's really no call for them to challenge the Lord on what the Lord says. They're just constantly challenging the Lord. You understand what this is like. You know, you, we live in a day and age when you can say one thing and you, you get challenged with it right off the bat. You can, you can tell the truth and it doesn't matter. The truth is challenged. No, that's not the truth. Yes, it is. Here's the evidence. Here's the proof. They're asking God for proof. Doesn't matter. We live in a world, we live in a world where because expectations are not met, and the children of Israel, when they got back to Israel, expected God to just cause them to flourish over the bat, off the bat just like that. And, cause, and, 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 and they expected him to, to keep his promises as if he were to answer them tomorrow. And you know that when expectations are not met and it doesn't make any difference, we live in a world where expectations are huge, that when we, we call into question, anytime an expectation is not met, we call into question the credibility of the person who leads us to believe that we should expect what we expect. And they're calling into question God's promises. They're calling into questions God's justice. They're calling into questions God's integrity. But God turns it around. There's a very interesting passage of Scripture, and I, I was so tempted to bring it in here today from the book of Isaiah, chapter in Isaiah, where God says, you know what? You claim that I weary you, but I, I want to explain how in reality your claim that I weary you is really me, uh, you wearying me. Men weary the Lord when they justify themselves in their sin, whether they're playing dumb, whether they're denying the obvious, whether they know that they're not telling the truth, but they're saying untruths anyway. Men weary the Lord when they justify themselves in their sins. And Israel is locked into a situation where they are justifying every single sin they commit. 
Isaiah states it very, very well. In chapter 5, you don't have to turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Let me just read it to you. You might want to write it down in your notes. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Look at it later. Isaiah chapter 5, 5, 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Well, by the way, Isaiah makes it clear, and it was written many, many years before this happens, right? In Malachi, Isaiah says that God is a God of justice. And so, Isaiah 30, that would be Isaiah 30, verse 18. Write it down, look at it later. So here's God's response in chapter 2, verse 17, in verse 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launder's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now, in a couple seconds, we'll go a tad further, but I want you to see what's happening because this is a wonderful Christmas passage of Scripture because it talks about the advent of Christ, His first coming into this world. Now you say, well, how, do you, how can you prove that to be true? Well, uh, write these down. You don't have to look at them now, but we're in the book of Matthew right now. So in Matthew chapter 11, this is, of course, the daily Bible reading for this week, book of Malachi. But Matthew is also part of that. So linking together several verses of Scripture, let me just mention them to you. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, this verse is quoted where the Bible says that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's quoted in Matthew chapter 11, and it refers to John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 1, he begins the book in chapter 1, verse 2, quoting this verse of Scripture, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That refers to John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And if, you don't, if you're not close enough to the story because you're in the life of Jesus, we can go to Luke chapter 1, verse 76, which is in the heart of the nativity events. The heart of the birth of Christ. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 76, this verse is quoted in relationship to John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. My favorite is in John's gospel, chapter 1, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when this verse is quoted in John chapter 1, verse 23. And John turns right around and says, I'm not the Christ. I've just come to be the forerunner of Christ. And then the very next day says, there's the Lamb that's going to take away the sin of the world. Christmas passage? Yes. 
Most of you would recognize it as not the first coming of Christ, but when we read what comes after that, let me just clear this up for you in case you're having a problem real quick, first of all. Behold, I, that's God, send my God messenger, John. And he, John, will prepare the way before me, God. And the Lord, Jesus, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his, Jesus, temple. Even the messenger, that's Jesus, of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he, Jesus, is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And if you didn't get that, in verse 2, what does it say? Who can endure the day of his coming? Three times you see the coming of Christ in verses 1 and 2. And by the way, you and I can easily link this passage of Scripture with the very last part of Malachi, where four times God tells us, that Jesus is coming. In chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And further down, before the coming of the Lord, verse 5, that dreadful day of the Lord, verse 6, I, I will come and be careful when I do. And most of us would say, because no, here's what I want. I want to clear up an issue here before we close. Most of us would look at this, and we don't see the nativity here at all, but I've already put those two events together so that we understand that this is the first coming of Christ that's being described. When he says he will go into his temple, Jesus was taken to the temple as a child. He, he was at the temple at 12 years of age. He threw the money changers out of the temple and ministered in the temple during his ministry. And that ought to be a start for you right there. But having said that, you look at this passage and say, I don't see the first coming here. I see the second coming of Christ here. How many thought that the whole time we were looking at this and saying, I don't see the first coming. I see the second coming of Christ here. When I see words like, who can endure the day of his coming? When I see words like he is going to be like a refiner's fire and launderer's soap, I see the second coming of Christ in all of this. When I see that he's setting up a court scene in verse 4, and as he sets up the court scene in verse 5, shall I say, and he comes to judge and he's going to be a witness against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers and those who export wage earners and widows and orphans and against those who turn away aliens and, and don't fear me. When I see all of that, I see the second coming of Christ. Here's what you need to understand, and I'll, I'll try to wrap this all up now. You and I need to understand that what God is doing here is He's combining the first coming of Christ with the second coming of Christ. And you cannot talk about the second coming of Christ unless you talk about the first coming of Christ. 
And the reason why you can't talk about the second coming of Christ until you talk about the first coming of Christ is because you'll make a mistake when you get to verses 2 and 3 and following. And when you get to verse 3 where it says that he is a refiner's fire, you're going to say that's what God's going to do when that's what Jesus is going to do when he comes to judge. He's going to take all of this metal that's filled with dross and he's going to burn off all the dross and give us pure metal. You're going to make that mistake and think that that's only happening in the future, when in reality, it's happening now. It happened with you. You think it's not just, it's not just a separation between the righteous and the evil. It's a separation between the evil in our hearts and the righteousness that God wants to establish. God wants to refine us like pure silver. And Jesus' first coming made that possible and makes it possible. And when we see that he's like launder's soap, he's like detergent that takes out the stains and the sin, clearly you can see that that's happening because of the first coming of Christ. Christ came. Social justice, we abuse that term so much in this day and age. Here's the one I like the best. Oh, holy night. The slave is our brother, and in him all oppression shall cease. The second coming of Christ. Right? Amen. But what kind of oppression is Jesus releasing us from because of his first coming? He's releasing us from the oppression of sin. I read this over, I read this over several times, and I said to myself, you had to make the sin of Israel clear before their eyes, before you would say, behold, Jesus is coming. Think about it. How is the world, how much of the world is going to be affected by the Christmas story and the coming of Christ and our invitations to share the gospel this Christmas time? If everybody you talk to says, I'm okay. My sin's all right. I'm not bad, as bad as you think. And everybody justifies their sin. And everybody questions God's promises and is skeptical and wants proof for everything God has promised. Did we get a changed world that way? No. No. So God combines the first coming of Christ, and he says, listen, with the second coming of Christ, and he says, listen, listen, I've come first to purify free you from your sin. If that doesn't happen, I'm coming to judge because God is a just judge and I'm coming to judge. And that's not a pretty picture. Amen? We only have a limited amount of time to share the grace of God in Christ and the forgiveness we can have through him. It's a limited amount of time to do that, and we need to share it with the world. 
But God's judgment on sin is eternal. Right? So, Lord, as we think about Christmas, we think about your grace. Lord, you could have bypassed Christmas altogether. You could have said, I have a standard, I have a righteous standard, and everybody is to obey it. Nobody can obey it, so everybody is doomed to an eternal hell. You could have done that, Lord. But you chose not to do that. Because of your love for us, you have chosen to look at us, and you have chosen to say, I am willing to pay the penalty for their sin personally. In Christ, the penalty is paid for those who will be saved. And so, Lord, we look to you and we thank you for Christmas. And when we look at the manger scene and we look at the nativity scenes around us and the, and the Christmas lights and all of the symbols of Christmas that are true to your word, oh, Father, may it do something in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we'll have not only a, a heart response to that, but an emotional one as well. Lord, we love you. We thank you for sending your son. Lord, we thank you for being there to save us from our sin. Oh, what a wonderful way that you did it, taking on the form of man. Dying in our place. Lord Jesus, thank you. For your sake, we pray. Amen.